Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast in the book of Revelation. In this series of podcasts, we're going to look at the book of Revelation from chapters 1 through 22. What did John say? How would John's readers have understood what he said? And what does it mean for us today? After we survey the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, we'll then record some more podcasts that will examine some of the more popular topics. What about the beast and the Antichrist and the rapture and some of the more popular topics? For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth podcast. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Today's podcast takes us to the second half of Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. We have the description now of another beast. This beast comes up out of the earth. Verse 11, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth, because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. The beast coming up out of the earth seems to be uh, the idea, perhaps, of the state, uh, the political beast, uh, uh, enlisting its religious and economic agents to persecute the church. From the perspective of Asia Minor, whatever comes from the land is native. That false prophecy takes place only amongst believers suggests that, the beast, that this beast's activities also take place in the church. We must remember that he's, this beast is referred to as the false prophet, and that emphasizes his religious role. That's further supported by the idea that he appears to be a lamb, yet he spoke like a dragon. Remember, Jesus tells the disciples, Watch out, for many false prophets will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Furthermore, we should expect the fact that this deception takes place inside the church because the devil doesn't need to deceive those on the world. They're already on his side. This beast is said to make an image uh, of the first beast who had the fatal wound and yet was healed. And then he forces everyone to worship the image, uh, and, and even give life to the image of the beast, that he might cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar's image, and that Daniel's three friends who were thrown in the fiery furnace for not complying to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar. The fact that he gives breath to the image of this beast is persuasive in his deception. Attempts, of course, to convince the people that he really is God and the one behind the image. It, it parodies the, the gift of life that God gives to humanity in the book of Genesis. The church, then, is to be strong like Daniel's friends were, even when placed in the fire. By the way, there's evidence in the catacombs of Rome that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were viewed as models for persecuted Christians. The second beast forces everyone to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. 
reminds of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, verses 3 through 11. The mark was a sign of loyalty to the beast. Only here is it, is it made in connection with buying and selling. It's a sign of ownership, of branding. Slaves were often branded, and so were religious devotees. Slaves that were branded was a sign of ownership. Religious devotees that were branded was a sign of loyalty. Note, of course, in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy that the Torah was supposed to be a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. If you go to Israel today, you can still see Israelites and modern-day Israelites who wear a little box on their forehead known as a phylactery. Sometimes you'll see them with leather wraps, uh, uh, straps wrapped around their, their wrists and their arms. That's a sign that they're binding it on their forearms. This, uh, this mark was, of course, the mark of the beast. And the result, of course, of taking on the mark of the beast, or not taking on the mark of the beast, is that you cannot buy or sell without it. It, it has an economic impact. It's forcing people to, to worship. If you don't worship the beast, then you're gonna, you can't participate in the system's economy. Reminds us, of course, of the Gospel of Marks and the parable of the sower. I, I believe the parable of the sower is perhaps the most significant parable that Jesus told in terms of us understanding what happens throughout the rest of the New Testament and even in the church today. In the parable of the sower, we find out that some seed falls upon the roadside, and the bird snatches that away, and Jesus tells us that the birds represent the devil, that some people don't receive the gospel at all, let alone with joy, because the devil snatched it away before it can even sink in. But three of the soils that the seed is sown upon actually bear a plant. One soil bears amongst the stones, and we're told that the stones represent persecution and opposition to, to, to the gospel. And as a result, those who have the stones fall away, and they actually don't ever bear a, a fruit. Even though a plant is born, no fruit is born. Another soil is the soil that one wants to see was sown amongst the, amongst the thorns. And that represents prosperity and security and, and life and happiness and pleasure. But the thorns choke it away. The fourth soil, however, is the only one that bore fruit. The fourth soil shouldn't be understood as having no thorns and no stones. I think the idea of the fact is that the fourth soil bore uh, a, a fruit even in the midst of the stones and even in the midst of the thorns. That is, if you're going to follow Jesus, and if we're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we better be ready for stones. And we also better be ready for thorns. The stones, of course, is the first beast. The first beast is going to persecute and even overcome and kill God's people. The second beast is going to take away our economic prosperity, our pursuit of happiness, and the pursuit of pleasure. There's going to be an economic uh, impact for it. Now we're told that the one who has understanding, let him calculate the number of the beast. And that's an important phrase in verse 18. It indicates that John's readers knew what this number represented, that they knew what it meant. If they just simply thought about it for a little while, had understanding, they could calculate the number. It's important because we often tend to read the book of Revelation as though it really only has relevance to the modern day. The idea that John's writing a, a vision about something that will happen in the future, and John's readers would have had no idea what he meant. The problem with that is then why did John tell his readers to, if you have insight, calculate the number of the beast? It must have been something that they, that they knew about. Now, we're told that the number is either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, back then, a new name indicates a, a new status. God's name indicates uh, God's presence amongst us and that we were God's possession. The number, perhaps, is symbolic for Antichrist or for anti-Christian power. After all, it's 666, which perhaps represents Satan's attempt at perfection but coming up short. If 7 is perfection or completion, then you, we, we would expect, indeed, that 7 is a number that's commonly going to represent God. And as we read through the book of Revelation, we note that significant titles for God occur seven times. So 666 may well indicate Satan's attempt at perfection but coming up short, 
and the three, or the use of six three times, perhaps is a satanic trinity. Now, in the biblical world, the number 666, by the way, occurs several other times in the, in the Old Testament. Solomon received 666 talents of gold yearly, which is probably the author's way of noting that Solomon was becoming, had become very, very corrupt. Nebuchadnezzar's image was 60 cubits by 6 cubits. So we see it elsewhere, by the way, even in the story perhaps of uh, David and, and Goliath. But most likely what John's referring to here in terms of calculating the number of the beast is what was called the, the Roman practice of gametria. Uh, even modern-day students of the, of the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, will often see in the, op in the opening introduction to their Greek or Hebrew uh, textbooks the, the fact that Greek letters and Hebrew letters both had numerical equivalents. The first nine letters, or first ten letters, uh, refer to the numbers one through ten. The next nine or ten letters represented the numbers ten through uh, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, ninety, and a hundred, and then it would go on uh, thereafter. That meant that every letter, or every word in Greek and in Hebrew had a numerical equivalent. There's actually a uh, a, a archaeological discovery in the remains of, of, of Pompeii when it was buried. Uh, someone had gra graffitied on the wall, I love the girl whose number is 545. 545. Now, the reality is we have no idea what name that could be because there's all kinds of names, perhaps, in Greek that would come up to the numerical equivalent of 545. So this person could graffiti on the wall without telling everybody else who he actually was referring to. Now, uh, the significance of the number 666 is that the Greek word for beast, actually, it, when it's translated into Hebrew, has the numerical equivalent of 666. Now, someone might stop and say, well, that doesn't matter because John wrote in Greek and we don't care what the Hebrew equivalent of the word beast is and its numerical value. Remember in chapter 9, John has already told us that the king of the uh, locusts was named Apollyon, but in Hebrew it was Abaddon. And later on in chapter 16, he's going to tell us about the, the war of Harmageddon, or Armageddon, which is a, a Hebrew word. So John has already given us some indication that there's a Hebrew background to some of the things. So the idea that the word beast, translated into Hebrew, comes up to the numerical equivalent of 666 is probably important. After all, he says that the number of the beast is either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, it might also indicate that it's the number of his name, and it could be some human person. Most likely, the referent here is, is to the emperor Nero. The problem is that Nero's name in Greek is six, comes up to the equivalent of 616. The letter N is, is equivalent to 50. But the name Nero in Greek does not have an N at the end of it. However, the Latin equivalent of Nero's name in Greek has an N, Neron. And when that is translated into Hebrew, it comes up to 666. If you have a Bible nearby, you might note that many of our translations have a little footnote near verse 18 that says 666, and the footnote says, or 616. Now, there's actually only three manuscripts that come up with the number 616. It's not well attested in the, in the manuscript uh, testimony. 666 is. But what's probably happening is the fact that later scribes who really identified the, the number 616, 666 with the Emperor Nero knew that Nero's name come up, came only up to 616 in the Greek. But if they realized that the name in Latin comes up to 666 when translated into Hebrew, they probably wouldn't have had any problem. But even the manuscript evidence, which disputes between 666 and 616, is probably an indication that the early scribes and, and early Christians identified the number 666 with the Emperor Nero. 
The commentator G.K. Beale notes, Revelation 13.9 employs the metaphor of hearing to exhort the believers to perceive spiritually the deceptive nature of the satanic beastly institutions to which they are being tempted to accommodate. The exhortation in verse 18 is the identical meaning, except that the metaphor of an intellect able to calculate is, is used instead of the ear metaphor. If the exhortation to exercise intellect by calculating is taken literally, then the exhortation to have ears to hear absurdly must be taken in a literal fashion to refer to hearing with physical ears. This is not some riddle to be solved by intellectual superior, but an exhortation to discern spiritual danger. Another commentator says, Those who are stamped with the name of the beast exhibit the character of traits of humanity striving to be like God, while those who are stamped with Christ's name renounce the self-deifying traits and instead give allegiance to the one true deity. Now notice also, by the way, and we'll point this out in more detail when we begin chapter 14 in our next study, that the mark of the beast has a parity between that and the name of God. In both cases, the name is on the forehead. In both cases, they are the name. In both cases, one cannot buy, or in one case, one cannot buy without it. While in the other case, those who have the name of, the, of Christ are those who are purchased. And that comes in chapter 14, verse 3. What does this mean for us then in, de- in terms of our nature, in terms of the nature of deception and false prophets? It means that we should be careful because the, av- the enemy is out there against God's people. The dragon pour forth water out of its mouth in order that he might cause God's people to be swept away, referring to its false, deceptive words and deceptive teachings. Then we see a beast in chapter 13 who has a mouth that can speak arrogant words and blasphemies and who will tear down God's people. And then we see another beast. And this beast causes everyone to worship the first beast, probably the religious side of, of the Roman Empire. And this beast uses deception as well. And then he uses, the first beast uses persecution and suffering to oppose God's people and to lure us astray. The second beast now uses uh, uh, economic har- hardships and economic consequences. The church must persevere in the midst of stones and in the midst of thorns. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.